Thanks for tuning in to the 168 Podcast, a podcast from Mitchell Knight and Jordan Bird of the Clarence Church of Christ, aimed at helping you connect Sunday worship with everyday life. Welcome everybody to another edition of the podcast. This version is a little bit different as I am not in New York this week. I am in Illinois, although by the time you're listening or watching this, I will be back in Buffalo in Western New York. And so it's kind of a weird back to the future thing going on here, at least in terms of all of you in engaging with this content. Uh, but yeah, so I'm not uh, right by Mitch for this episode, but we're doing it uh, digitally and should still be just as good, I think. And um, we're just glad we can join all of you for another episode of the podcast. Today, we're starting a series of episodes on the miracles of Jesus. And we're first going to be looking at the feeding of the 5,000 miracle that Jesus performs. Performs? Perform seems like a weird thing, like it's a show, but that's not... Anyway, that's kind of how we talk about miracles, I guess, in Jesus' life. But the time and place in which Jesus fed 5,000 people with just a little bit of food, that's the miracle we're going to be talking about today. And so I'm going to swing it over to Mitch to kind of dive into that topic. Thank you. Uh, I am still in Buffalo. Um, This is a different angle of my home than you normally see. I'm currently in my office rather than the kitchen with Jordan. Um which is fitting because we're talking about the feeding of the 5,000 and I happen to mention a kitchen. So there's some food themes already going on, which is great. Um, So part of the reason I um, wanted us to do a series like this is because Jesus's earthly life and ministry, as much as we feel connected to it, because we are, I think sometimes it can seem far away from us because it is, you know, when it comes to the amount of years that it's removed from us. Um, And his miracles, um, these miraculous signs and uh, these wonders that he worked on earth are things that inspire us. um, But likewise, because they're in the past, maybe they could be hard to relate to. But each of these miracles, as Jesus is the full revelation of who God is, each of these miracles kind of give us snippets into what he thinks of humanity, um, what he wants of us, and how he loves us, and how he cares for us. So that's kind of the idea, um, looking at each one of these, kind of talking about them, and uh, showing how the truth in the moments of these miracles as they're performed um, shines into our lives in the present day as well. So I wanted to start with the uh, feeding of the 5,000. I don't know, uh, you think I should read it real quick? Sure, why not? Because um, yeah, I'm gonna be. It's not unique to Gons, uh, to John Gons, to John's Gospel, um, but that's where I'm going to be pulling it from. So in John six, right at the beginning, starting from verse one, it says, "Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick." Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another one of his 
Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took a loaves, loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing what they intended to come, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So when you kind of look at this miracle in the accounts as written by the other gospel authors, you see that at the beginning, Jesus has concern for the people that are there. Um, he has like a tender concern for them that if they go home, because some of these people have come from far away, he mentions to see him, to hear him teach, to hear him speak. He wants to make sure that they are sustained um, on food to be able to make the journey, you know, not to um, lose energy and to fail to make the journey on the way back home, basically. Um, so when I look at this, you know, I see that. But then I think the ultimate idea of this miracle is revealed in just a little bit later uh, in John, where someone makes a reference to him about manna that their ancestors ate in the wilderness. And he says, well, I'm the bread of life. You know, you could eat manna from heaven all you want, but you're still going to be left hungry. But if you eat of me, then you are going to be satisfied. So I think looking at the feeding of the 5,000 is an exercise in seeing that it's not necessarily the bread that's able to multiply them that's sustaining them. If all they had was what they were um, or what they had access to, they would have starved. They wouldn't have what they needed. But Jesus, because he was there, was able to multiply it and sustain them. And I think the modern-day parallel for us is in looking at the bread that we can provide ourselves, the things that we can go after, and all the resources we have available and kind of excluding the fact that there is a creator, there is a giver, there is a sustainer there that is giving us those resources. Jesus is the one who sustained the people. It's not the bread itself. It's the one who created the bread, and it's the one who cares for his people. And that kind of points us toward, um, you know, the ultimate meal of communion that we get to experience every Sunday, um, Jesus being the bread of life, the bread being his body, um, and he himself being what truly sustains us and lets us live forever. Um, so those are just kind of some of my opening thoughts um, on it and the significance of this miracle. Just the idea that Jesus is the one who truly sustains us. And I mean, you'll even hear this miracle reference later on in the Gospels when people come after him because they just want more loaves and more fishes, you know, but what they really should be seeking after is the fact that Jesus can sustain us. And that's what he's proving here through this miracle for me. So that's just kind of my opening thoughts on it. Did you have anything you wanted to add? So, yeah, I, I think I share your general sentiment about the miracle. I, the main, main thought I was thinking of with this miracle is just the fact that it reflects 
who Jesus is and being God's son, that he is divine, that ultimately there's a tie back to the creator of all things, like the person that sustains all of us, who provides for all of us. It, it, that's demonstrated in what he does here. Could he have probably showed that in other ways? Yes. Does he probably, does he show it in other ways? Yes. But this is one particular way where it is demonstrated who he is. And especially, I have to look back here. I mean, yeah, I mean, John 6 is followed not very far after that, at least in John's gospel with Jesus being the bread of life, which I think you maybe even already touched on. And so John is at least connecting those ideas together to some degree by including them that close together of here, you know, looking at regular food and that he physically provided for the people. And then not too far after that, he's talking about being the bread of life. And then there's this whole like, you know, that's where he starts talking about eating his flesh and stuff like that, I think. Yes. And people are like, what the heck is he talking about? <laughs> like there's this disconnect because they're not connecting those ideas. Um, but yeah, to me that stands out very much in, in that, at least looking back on it from our perspective of who else can provide that, but the one who, as the Psalms talk about, owns the cow on a thousand hills and just the, the provider of all things, or even just the other parts of the gospels where it talks about God providing for the, like the littlest, tiniest uh, thing in creation that, that we maybe don't pay attention to all the time, whether it's birds or the flowers or whatever it may be. Um, God is the one who's providing. And so who who is God? Well, he's the one standing here right in front of you performing this miracle. One thing I thought was interesting, it, I don't think it's talked about in our, I think it was talked about in this. Is When you read it, was is it this version where it says, uh, they gathered the pieces of yeah, let, they gathered the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. Mm-hmm. I've never really thought about that. I mean, I've I've always kind of thought about, oh, yeah, like why would you waste that much stuff? But like it really hit me when you were reading it of wait a moment. He's talking about not wasting stuff that he just like made up here essentially. <laughs> like like if you can just make stuff appear like is wasting even like part of your like thought process. But for him in that moment there, there was like, I think, I don't know, awareness there of like, it's here now, like do something with it. Like what, what are we going to do with it? How, do, how does it become a blessing? So I think there's even con- a connection there of like who God is and what he does is always meant to bless others. It's never to just sort of be there for just the, like the flippancy of it. So I don't know that that really struck me when you read it this time of the fact that he highlights not to let it go to waste. And I never really have caught on to that before. Um, another thing I thought was interesting, I actually just read the Mark passage, which it's a different scenario as far as I understand it, where Jesus feeds 4,000 people, I think it is. Mm-hmm. And cause it's a different amount of food that's mentioned. It's like seven, no, so yeah, seven loaves of bread and, it just says a couple of fish, at least the New Living Translation said that. But at the end, I thought it was interesting that I'm pretty sure I have to go back and check that. I think there were, was it seven baskets left? Or, or I don't know, there was like almost the same. Seven doesn't sound right. I have to look this up now. Yeah, it says, so in Mark chapter eight, yeah. Because it talks about... Seven loaves, Jesus gives thanks. There's a couple, or a few small fishes with the New Living Translation, or actually this is the NIV. And at the end, 
it says that after the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. So anyway, I just thought it was interesting that there's like this, you know, abundance in like, you know, I mean, it started with just a loaf and now there's like baskets full of the same amount at the end of it. And again, that's not the feeding of the 5,000, but it's a similar situation of, of a miracle. And I don't know, they're, Again, I think that says something to who who Jesus is and ultimately points to like he is the provider of all things. Like who else could do something like that but God himself. So anyway, but those details are like just very purpose or I shouldn't say purposeful. I don't know. I wasn't the one who did it, but like they seem to communicate something specific or they're not just there just by accident, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And so it highlights the detail that goes into even the miracles that Jesus does. So yeah. those are some things that stand out to me for sure. Yeah. Hearing you talk about it, I, I just think um, kind of what you're getting at is that God does everything with a purpose. It's not, nothing he does is impersonal. He has his heart and everything that he does. And by him multiplying the bread and the fishes and saying, well, you know, collect the leftovers so nothing's wasted. I mean, I think that kind of, to your point, points that out um so to speak it reveals that aspect of his character um it i just think the easy way to um look at a miracle like this is to ask yourself you know what what is really feeding the people here is it is it really the bread and the fishes it's like well yeah you know secondarily but again if it weren't for jesus actually being there to love on them and actually give them what they needed they wouldn't have had their fill it's so it's really not about the loaves and the fishes even though that's the descriptor of this miraculous sign it's really about jesus's love and his provision and his purposeful nature um so yeah there's that yeah i mean i, I do think it's i mean i kind of glossed over this and talking about the the amount that's left over but the fact that there is more left over than the lack of that started everything says something again about God's character that, you know, I think often we approach life from like, if I just had fill in the blank, you know, we go to God in prayer about the, just that, <laughs> like we, we, we live on the, just that, like we want the, what just fits in that specific thing. And then yet like something like this, I think highlights that God has in mind far broader than that. And I mean, even again, we don't know the heart or the reason for like why half these people were all there, why they didn't have food, why they didn't plan ahead, whatever it may be. Yet he doesn't just feel the need. He kind of goes over and beyond. I mean, he does. He goes over and beyond that. And just I think that highlights, again, something about God's character that we can easily be tempted to think of God as just sort of providing what we need rather than providing what we need and beyond that which is part of just a stretching of our imagination. Like we, we only see what we see and we, we get caught in the emotional moments that we get caught in and God is beyond that. So he can interact beyond that. And so I think that's, that's good news to take away from this, that God, God is his perspective of things is bigger than our perspective. And we benefit from that perspective and having that relationship with him and engaging with life. And and like you said, like ultimately it all comes back to him. And 
I mean, I think that's one of the forma formational things of like why we give thanks for our food and like how we're raised as Christians to to do such things. I mean, and a lot of that comes back to passages like this where Jesus gives thanks before he performs the the miracle. Uh, but it's just an appreciation of like it's a posture of gratitude that what I'm about to consume was not just of my own doing for one. There's a whole lot that goes into that. A scholar by the name of Norman Wurzwa has helped me basically really appreciate just the whole moment of gratitude. Even this morning, actually, I feel like I don't do well at like, I, I like intellectually, I know this stuff, but then it's like practically like living it out. And uh, this morning, I mean, not like the healthiest of things, but like I was eating a bowl of frosted flakes because that's what we had here. And I almost just had a moment of like, yeah, thank you God for this food and just kind of left it at that. And I was like, I had a moment of pause because Norman Wurz was one of the, the people who kind of has helped me think through what is it that you're about to eat here? Like what colors are you getting to experience? What taste are you getting to experience? And once you start going down the path, like it just starts dominoing to like, well, there was a farmer involved and there was soil that had to be a certain context to grow the corn and you know, just all the different things that had to come together for me to have even access to this food to eat it. I mean, all the way to the milk, to the cow, to, you know, just the whole just gamut of things. The fact that my taste uh, buds work the way they do, uh, my brain can compute all that stuff, my body can't like you can just keep going and going and going. Like once you start down that path, you get to where it's almost hard to get to the end of it because there are so many things involved for just that moment. And it's hard to not, unless you're just want to ignore it. I think it's hard to not then be grateful that like you are the recipient of these, like almost what thousands of things, probably, probably more than that. If you include it like all the way down the line, if you could ever get to the nth degree of it and, um, once you start realizing like you're in the middle of that whole process, there's a, there's a, to me that that's where, and the, this is where Norman Wordsworth talks about there's where gratitude is shaped because you realize that you are dependent on another for what you're eating. You're, you're dependent on another for the experiences that you're having. Ultimately that goes back to God. And so I think that's highlighted also in this passage too, just by the sheer fact that God, Jesus himself gives thanks before performing the miracle right or at least i think he does in this one too i think i'm yeah in both he, of these miracles broke he does the things. same thing yeah i think um so there's two more things about this miracle that i wanted to touch on and one would be you know kind of you got into one warning for readers kind of about resources and stuff like that i i think kind of to the opposite of the you know the cultural context of this story here, Americans kind of are faced with an abundance of resources already, right? They already have, in some instances, you know, they have what they need. And it really isn't until they lose what they have that they're kind of confused as what to do next. Rather than having a lack of something that is provided by Jesus, they have what they need, or so they think, they lose what they have, and then they don't really know where to go. And I think for us, I think the temptation in like looking at stories like this or just looking at life in general is to say, well, if I have enough of a certain thing, I'll be fine. If I have enough money, if I have enough food, you know, if I have my bomb shelter in case things, you know, go to crap in the entire world, if I have my I, zombie know, apocalypse kit, you know, exactly. But, um, 
really that's it kind of shows a disconnect between like what you're talking about about gratitude for what is provided for you i mean really like you can be grateful for the fact that you've collected everything and you've hoarded everything but ultimately it's what's created it that counts it's god that counts it's the you know the great provider that counts and then you know the other thing i think of and this is probably a bit of a reach and this is more secondary to the other themes we've been discussing so secondary to what we were talking about earlier and all those themes about provision that jesus is the ultimate thing that actually satisfies us you know we're called to follow after the example of christ and we get examples of his example based on what we see in scripture and stories like this and for some reason you know in reading the story right now for this episode of the podcast just seeing jesus take what is given from his father by thanking him and then multiplying it to the people that he loves it reminds me about um you know the parable of talents you know being given from god in order to multiply and be invested in the lives of other people God is giving thanks here in this moment. He's, he's showing appreciation for what he has, but, you know, Jesus is ultimately giving that to other people. He isn't showing us that we keep blessings to ourselves. He's showing us that we multiply the blessings that we are given for the benefit of the people around us. And I think it's a, just another example of that agape kind of love, that self-giving love that Jesus shows us in, in here. So, like I said, maybe a little bit of a reach, but you know, I, I see that theme in this miracle story as well. Yeah, those are some good thoughts. I think that's about all I have for this episode, unless you have some further thoughts to add on. Oh, I've got some further thoughts, all right. <laughs> but therefore, the 168 News Desk. I like that music. Probably already over by the time I'm dancing. Um, yeah. So this week, uh, Jordan and I, it seems like we've come to a, an agreement on what we're both going to talk about. And that's going to be the, I believe, $1.4 billion stadium deal that the Buffalo Bills have made um, that Terry and Kim. Um, Pagula. Yeah, Terry and Kim Pagula. Yeah, I, sometimes I switch the first letters of their names, like Terry and Tim. <laughs> And I don't, I don't think realize it. Did, like, no, I don't think I did. But, you know, I'm obviously not, you know, thinking that that's their actual names. I just misspeak. But, um, yeah, they made that deal with Erie County, with New York State, um, and the taxpayers, <laughs> I guess. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, but, sure. So um, as far as the physical stuff with the stadium, apparently it's going to be open air, which I, you know, I guess that's fine. I mean, that's what Buffalo is known for. Um, kind of the cold weather, cold weather games. So it's whatever. I mean, but I still, I still think like, you know, at least an option to close it just in case there's like a giant thunderstorm, like what happened in Kansas city. You know, we don't have to delay the game for like an hour and a half. You know, we can just continue on. We can close the thing, make it a dome for the time being. Keep going. I, so I, yeah. I like I like the flexibility there. I know we've talked in the past about like, well, it's, it's kind of stupid to have the flexibility there because no one ever uses it. But I feel like in a place like Buffalo, you could use it just for stuff like that with the crazy like rain events that we get, um, which are just yeah, annoying. I, I don't know. I mean, from what I've gathered, 
to me the difference between what's currently there and what this will be is that there is it sounds like the plan is to have some sort of like structure over like the seating and whatnot so part of me thinks in the end the whole thing is going to be a lot more in, not fully enclosed but more enclosed than what it is now meaning and, and so from a spectator standpoint i think it's not going to be quite as it, i mean it's definitely not going to be as exposed as it is now does that mean there's not gonna be like a lightning delay no because it's open or that snow won't hinder stuff no but i do think that it's not going to be quite the like it's just like wind whipping and snow whipping and all that kind of stuff and like the craziest of weather stuff that can happen in the stadium now. So I do think it'll be different from that standpoint. Um, weather, I mean, again, it's like how much, none of us were involved in this. So it's like, who knows, but like, it seems to have been repeated multiple times that the closed, like the, you know, a dome basically was off the table partly because of cost, which is partly, ironic because government entities seem to just want to go to the hill when it comes to like public money on stuff but i don't know do we say to their credit like they're actually <laughs> going down the path of whatever costs less i mean we're still talking about a billion dollars which is like none of us can even fathom what that's even like but i only they're also they're also supposedly to... saying that there's like a you know plan to like pay it back and off which again who knows if that will ever it's just gonna, all gonna be in the mix of stuff but Again, the least the talking point of that, I think, is like, okay, bravo, if you want, if like that, that's actually the thinking that went into why it's that. I do think there's a sense to which the culture for Buffalo and the Bills, like, definitely was not the, the dome thing. I do think, like, if you, if you look at it from an analytics standpoint, like, for modern football, it's crazy to not give your team like the best advantage with the facility. But again, that's money and that's all the stuff. I, I do agree with people who take the stance of don't build it to have like all these other events that may or may not come to the city or the area <clears throat> because yeah, you may attract some things, but some of that stuff is stuff that could just as well be at the arena that we already have. Like we do, it's not like we don't have an indoor facility already to some degree, yeah. um, at least as far as like an, an area. Um, and the whole like a Super Bowl coming here, I mean, just there was so much other stuff that would have to be in place for something like that to ever happen to start with. That's just not probably feasible. Um, I don't know what the difference between like the draft and the Super Bowl, like as far as amenities has to be, but that seems like maybe that's something that's more feasible as far as like an attractional thing. I do think it's cool if there's stuff like soccer and whatnot that can maybe be used in the whole, uh, the new, the new venue and whatnot. And, uh, but we'll see. Um, I do, I, I ultimately think like picking where it is currently makes the most sense and not the whole entire hassle that would ensue or legal battle or whatever with trying to put it downtown there's i mean we've as an area we no one can decide what to do with a green elevator what were they going to do with like however much space an arena or a stadium was going to take up downtown <laughs> i mean that's that was just gonna be a nightmare if that ever happened um so to me the most sense made is, is where it's gonna go I, to me personally i think it'd be cool if they find some way to even if the i mean it sounds like the, the old one's gonna come down at some point but if they could utilize that as a like incorporated into like tailgating or like some part of the culture of 
what already happens around the game, I think would be cool. Kind of like they have, I'm trying to think, I know Canal Side has some stuff that's related, like, I'm trying to think of during the, in the ice, isn't there like a, like where the face-off circled or dots would have been for the odd, I think is part of Canal Side. Like, it's, they could do stuff like that, I think would be cool to kind of incorporate like the past into the present. And so that would be my hope um, that th they don't just like demolish it. And it's just a parking lot and you have no idea that there's anything else there. Like, cause there's history and there's, it's a cultural thing that people have spent, you know, have memories and whatever there. So I think it'd be cool if they could incorporate that somehow into it. Or like, I don't know you can leave the field or the goalpost. Or I don't know something to like keep it similar or remindful of that kind of stuff. But what other thoughts do you have about it? Uh, it's a lot of money. <laughs> it's just, it's just weird yeah. to think about, but, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I like your idea about utilizing the old stadium in some way. Like, even if it becomes some kind of, um, like they do with green Bay, although, you know, that's still the field they play on, like you know, using it as kind of like a museum of like Bill's history. And then on top of that, having some interactive stuff, but, um, yeah, other than that, I mean, I'm happy the Bills will be here for 30 more years, which is nice. Um, I that seems be, to be, uh, to me, the almost 56. the biggest news that came out of everything was, I mean, yeah, there's a stadium, but the long, I'm, I, I'm probably surprised that got tied to it, but I guess I'm not sure how you end, go into that kind of endeavor without some sort of guarantee, but... I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to think like other cities that I'm sure have arenas and stadiums or whatever, and teams have moved. So it's like, it's not like impossible. <laughs> I was just surprised yeah. that that was tied to, to that, I guess. But so, yeah, I mean, it's been like a long awaited thing and it's, yeah, now it's almost like, it's almost, it's, bills. <laughs> I mean, it's just almost odd that it's, happened because it's like been a talking point even back to when they got sold but it's still kind of been lingering there the whole time so yeah it's definitely odd but it, but then at the same time it's like six years away <laughs> so, right six years four years 20 something like that no 2026 so not six years four more years four <laughs> more years but well someone so someone pointed out how technically i guess it's 30 it's a 31 year guarantee because the next or is it more than no whatever the time in between there because that doesn't kick in until the new one's even built so there's whatever time between now and then that they're still i mean so it's technically longer of a that they're guaranteed to be here if you will unless you can like somehow leave in between then i don't know if that's even possible but i don't i don't see that happening but I don't know, but then you look at just like the amount of money pumped into a lot of different cities for just even smaller venues. I mean, the amount, I mean, the cost of things is just insane to begin with, but I mean, and there's just like no way of talking about the NFL stuff without it sounding gross in comparison to like other social issues <laughs> that money could be used for. And I don't know. I mean, for good or bad, it is the thing that our area is known for <laughs> nationally and globally. So I don't know. I mean, it's like, do you put money into Niagara Falls to make it a a thing that's worth going to see, or do you use that money towards social stuff? It's kind of the same. Th I mean, it's all just like 
a first world issue to some degree, but yes. um, I don't know. I mean, a lot of people's take seems to just be like, that's, it's part of the, if you want to have an NFL team, this is the game you play, which I think is funny that we even call it a game because <laughs> it's a game on top of the game. But um, I don't know, like I said, I mean, to the few things I would give credit for are just the, if it really was down to like not making the price that much more outrageous going the cheaper route <laughs> and then also trying to, I think, preserve things that were already part of the culture of the team as far as fan as a fan base goes. I think that stuff's kind of, it's cool that it seems like they've listened from that end of it. So we'll see yeah. if they kind of go down that path to still do it. But, um, so yeah, I, I mean, I think it was a surprisingly well, rounded outcome without a ton of controversy and like surprisingly that there wasn't a ton of controversy to even make it happen i think is probably the more amazing thing but yeah. i i guess i haven't heard because i haven't been paying attention this this week did politically i don't know that there's been any other like like the state not voting or to go forward with it right as far as i know no yeah i mean i think everyone was on board i just think the more societal backlash is like certain people like within the deal definitely made out like bandits <laughs> like um yeah. but i haven't looked into it as much but that's one complaint that i hear yeah so yeah i feel like i had a couple other thoughts but i can't think what they are at the moment but but it is also yeah. weird like coming to a different state and like hearing like you know the news stuff here like how like that's such a thing that's engrossing to our culture <laughs> And like, but it's not on the radar of like everywhere else. Although I did, when I was driving through on my way here, like through Cleveland, like they're already like, should we, you know, try to get a new stadium? I mean, like their stadium's not even like that old necessarily, but it's been around long enough, but they're like, well, not until the team's any better. Would we ever like think about <laughs> trying to like ask for a new stadium? But so, I mean, they, they were kind of talking about it in that sense, but I'm sure there's a lot of other places that would, would like to have new stadiums as well but i don't know it's still just insane to me that like renovating the current one is just not even like a possible thing i don't know to me it, it like keep the history but i'm also someone who i feel like appreciates the historical side of stuff too while also kind of improving it so but i think they did that yeah. in chicago with soldier field and like there it's i've heard a couple different times like people want to redo that and i don't know when they, i forget when they did that but because I think they kind of recreated it from the inside out without really tearing it down. But I don't know. But I don't know. It wasn't like a couple months ago. I know there was like, I think locally they were playing the one of the Boston station radio stations was talking about, should we get a new Fenway Park? And it's like, <laughs> how dare you even talk about like, I mean, that's just like, that's like one of those you don't like question. It seems like that and Wrigley, but or Lambo and trying to think of the other ones. But um so yeah, but yeah, it's yeah, it's just crazy that it's finally happened for all the discussion that's gone around yeah. it. <laughs> so I guess on to whatever the next controversy is going to be with the NFL or whatever, something like that. I guess an arena for the Sabers is the next thing that people, yeah, well. sports wise, want to talk about. But <laughs> I don't know, unless like uh, seventy thousand seventy thousand is too big for like MLS. But if that would ever put them in the, the running for like soccer or something, but I don't think yeah. they'd play there if that was the case. 
And I don't know if they can with Toronto as close as it is anyway, but who knows. But yeah. All right. Well, thanks everybody for joining us for this episode and hearing us uh, talk about our thoughts about Jesus miracle of feeding the 5,000 and then our rambling about uh, the bill stadium. And hopefully you found that interesting. And if you have thoughts about the stadium, we'd uh, be interested to hear what you think about of that as well. Or, uh, more importantly, your thoughts on Jesus' miracle of feeding the 5,000 and what are some characteristics of God's character that stand out to you from that miracle. So thanks for joining us, and we'll catch you next time. See you later, 168ers. <laughs> <laughs>